Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm your host, John Fury, and I'm joined by my colleagues, John Easton, Adam Belmar, and Chris Brown. Big week in politics, so we'll get right to the theories. Theory one, Obamacare repeal and replace ain't dead yet, but a bad recess could kill it. The fact that Mitch McConnell didn't push for a vote before the July 4th recess means that he's not willing to throw in the towel quite yet. But members are spooked, and it's not clear if they can reach consensus. The question in my mind is if they don't do this when they get back, what happens to tax reform? John Easton, what do you think? I think if they don't do a bill that passes and gets signed by the president, that tax reform is not happening in part because one relies on the other. Repeal of, of Obamacare first gives them the ability to play with some money with tax reform, and it also improves the budget baseline. So in order to do that, you have to have health care reform. But uh, in the broader picture, I, I think this is a, is a one-time chance for the Republican Party. It's an it's a in, inter-family squabble. They've got to figure this out. And I think that not only Mitch McConnell uh, is not throwing in the towel, but I don't think other Republican members are either. I think that, uh, according to leadership staff yesterday, that they perceive most members as wanting to get to yes instead of just trying to find a way to say no. And that is a, for those who are rooting for this bill, that is a good sign. So I, I saw the media coverage of the CBO score. The Congressional Budget Office had a score of this bill, and it said that they were going to lose 22 million people, were going to lose their insurance. It saved about $200 billion, and the, and the media all basically said that this CBO score was the death knell. I, I took a different approach to that. I thought, actually, it, it gave Republicans a lot more money to play with to give money back to folks like uh, Rob Portman for opioids. Uh, also, for uh, conservatives, we get much more in HSAs and, and uh, tax credits. Uh, I also thought that uh, the, the fact that CBO said that premiums would go down for the average person in 10 years was actually a good sign. Um, what do you think about that, John? Do you think that the CBO score helped or hurt? I think you can look at this any way you want. And if you're the Democratic Party, you know you're already starting to write the ads for the 2018 elections. So I think Republicans know what they're getting into here, and they really have to bite the bullet in order to support this. The problem that I see with all of this is, and it, and of course, happened with Obamacare, where one party owns an entire system. The healthcare system is 18% of GDP in the United States. So something that affects Americans' everyday lives, and one party owns it, and the other can just throw rocks at it, that's what happened with Obamacare, and that's why it's going down. And it could happen here unless they really see this through with the governors uh, to make some success out of it. Chris Brown, what are your thoughts on where we are right now uh, with the health care repeal and replace? I think that if you look at the USA Today Suffolk University poll from this week, uh, there's a 12% approval rating out in the country for this. I think that's a misleading number. Yeah, it's 12% approval, but the vast majority of people say they don't have enough information to have an opinion about it yet. So if they can sell this during the recess, we might actually get somewhere. Uh, Adam Belmar? I believe that this is a very very important time for the Republican Party writ large. Um, we have had seven years of calls for repeal and replace. We've seen uh, these 
caucuses come out with bills that they've sent to President Obama's desk, knowing he'd never sign it. And I believe that the American people, including those in the Republican Party, will start revolting if they get fundraising emails from folks uh, and they can't get this done. Quite simply, this is a good old-fashioned train pileup if the Republican interparty fight that John Easton is describing can't come to a yes. There's way, way, way too much uh, posturing and not enough leadership. And if there's any time to get something done, it's now. And if they don't, um, I am very, very worried, not for the elections, but for what bodes for the rest of the president's agenda. I will. I agree with all that. I, I would say that the uh, Mitch McConnell threatened that if we if the Republicans don't come together and get this done, that he's going to go and cut a deal with Chuck Schumer. Uh, John Easton, you seem to be saying that actually that might not be a bad result because then both parties own this. The question I have is why would Chuck Schumer bail out the Republicans on this on this bill when Republicans have to prove that they can govern? Will Chuck Schumer do anything to bail the Republicans out? Uh, no, he won't bail them out. He'll make it so excruciatingly painful to uh, get through this process that it's not worth it. I think that it, it would have been something to have accomplished a while ago. Not now. We're too far. We're too far gone. They, well, look, the, the Republicans have to figure this out on their own and, and, and get it through. Yeah. And when we're talking about Republicans, as we sit here at this table, we're thinking about the majorities in both houses of Congress. But just this week, the president of the United States backed away from all of this and said, well, you know, we might not be able to get it done. And I understand that. I'm OK with that. I don't understand what he is thinking or doing. If he's crazy like a fox. I, I just can't catch that fox because I don't understand how the president, who's not making the case to the American people, who's not leading on this bill, and is leaving it to, to Mitch McConnell, who as yet has not proven that he can govern, and he's about to try and shepherd through a bill that's going to have a really deleterious effect on the people of Kentucky, one-third of whom are on Medicare, and one-third of that third uh, are on it because of Medicare or Medicaid expansion during Obamacare. I mean... There's just no real leadership going into the 4th of July recess. You say, John, that a bad recess could kill it. Well, this thing's starting to look bad from day one. <laughs> uh, that's true. Uh, Chris, you're the closest thing we have to a millennial in this group. You're a handsome devil. You, uh, when you look at something like this, young people got punished by Obamacare because they were forced in to paying for Obamacare. Uh because they're the, they're the folks who most help insurance exchanges because they're younger, they usually aren't as sick. Um, do younger folks think that repealing and replacing this is a good idea, especially the individual mandate? Do they care? Uh, do they care more about the, the impact on the deficit, or are they just kind of tuned out? Obviously, the young invincibles, as they were called seven years ago, uh, were initially adverse to signing up. But that's the way that insurance works, and that's fine. I think if you look and talk to people who are under 30 right now, the two things they care about by far the most are contraception and staying on your parents' insurance until you're 26. Those are the deal breakers. <laughs> that's fascinating, actually. Um, you know, I think that to, to Adam's point and John's point and at Chris's point, Republicans have to prove that they can govern. Um, and repealing root and branch Obamacare is going to be painful be precisely because of things that Chris talked about. 
uh, about young people liking certain aspects of this. And then what Adam talks about is that people don't want to get kicked off of Medicaid. And especially, and a lot of those folks voted for Trump. So this is a huge problem for the Republican Party. And to John's point, they have to get this done because they've got to prove they can govern. They've got, they can't just let this fester on the, on the vine and, and, and uh, you know, collapse because then that's on their watch. I would also make the, the observation about President Trump. Uh, he tweeted out today, uh, why don't we just repeal now and replace later? Which was exactly what Mitch McConnell wanted to do from the, from the get-go. Um, I'm not sure if that's a very good solution. I'm not sure if it was a very good solution then. I'm not sure if it's a good solution now. But the thing about Donald Trump is he's thinking, Adam, on a whole different level than you are. The question is, is it on a higher level or a lower level? Well, listen, <laughs> I, this blew my mind. And I think we'll cede to John Easton because he's got the, the best wisdom on this. But we're talking ultimately, John, about a mechanism for passing this called reconciliation. And in order to do that, Mr. President, you have to put the replace with the repeal. There is no one than the other. It won't work. You're going to need you're going to need a supermajority without reconciliation to get some lighter day uh, replace through the Senate. True. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that uh, beyond that, I think that what you're doing is is catastrophic for the Republican Party. You're going to just repeal this and throw a whole bunch of people off their insurance and not come back with a solution. I mean, the American people are used to and they deserve solutions. You can't just rip it out and say, well, we'll take care of this later. I mean, that's just complete irresponsibility. Well, that is irresponsibility. But I'm thinking chiefs of staff in the Senate uh, the principals themselves are scratching their head, knowing the legislative priorities and the, the the restrictions that come from the parliamentarian in the Senate. This is a very nuanced approach to being able to make this happen. You can't just start suddenly painting outside the lines of reconciliation, Mr. President. Well, I would say the repeal now, replace later strategy in my mind, is not bad if you because you get all Republicans to agree on repeal, and then have a bipartisan approach on replace. I thought that would have been a great strategy at the beginning of the Congress, uh, but we're well past the beginning of the Congress, and Republicans are more than half pregnant on this issue. Theory two: Donald Trump shouldn't pick a fight with Mika Brzezinski, no matter how mad she makes him. I personally find Morning Joe to be unwatchable. And I think both Joe and Mika to be less than sympathetic figures. But when President Trump, com President Trump comments on Mike Mika's facelift, he makes her the victim. I think that is just stupid politics. And it makes it more difficult to get things done through the Senate, especially as he tries to get support from people like Senator Susan Collins. Anna Belmar, I'm going to start with you. I know that you are a big fan of President Trump's and his tweeting. Um, and that you are an avid watcher of Morning Joe. Um, what are your thoughts about this latest smokescreen from President Trump? All right, for, for those of you who are following along at home, uh, <laughs> neither of those two previous statements are true. But I will say this. You know the backbone of our nuclear posture is a philosophy called mutually assured destruction. What the president has promulgated and pointed up with this tweet is mutually assured distraction. 
All we have is distraction after distraction after distraction. It was rude. It was wrong. It was beneath the dignity of the office. He was absolutely out of line. And I can give you a hundred reasons. Most of them have already been put out by members of his administration about why you knew you were getting this when you hired the man. And he fights fire with fire. Bullshit. This was wrong. We can't have it. And it is absolutely untenable for the president to continue to take these personal attacks against women. And the misogyny that's creeping back in is wrong. I would ask him, please, to dial it back. Dial it back. Uh, Chris Brown, uh, as an avid watcher of the social media, uh, what do you think of how this is going to play? Is this exactly the distraction that President Trump wants so that we're not talking about health care? And how long will that distraction last? Well, the great thing about this presidency is that there's a new distraction every day, so we never get bored. Uh, if I wanted to create a, a smokescreen or a distraction to get somebody off my back, this is not what I would do. I would not guarantee that members of my own party and every member of the other party are going to come after me for being a jerk, which is exactly what he was. Uh, I, the other thing I would point out is, as they mentioned in the Washington Post this morning, this is an alleged facelift, not a confirmed facelift. <laughs> John Easton, uh this uh, Susan Collins immediately voiced her displeasure about the comments on Mika's facelift. Uh, I don't know if Mika's had a facelift or not. I mean, you know, I think she's a very nice person. Uh, I'm kidding. Um, but the the interaction between Mika and Joe and President Trump has been really kind of weird because Mika and Joe love Trump and then they hated Trump and then they kind of liked Trump. And then they're back to now hating Trump. And they, I mean, Mika started, she attacked Trump. She called him a liar. She called him, and, and, and really kind of very deeply personal terms. This is not, I don't think the Chris's point, this is not really a part of a strategy. It was just him, Trump being pissed. You started it. Right, exactly. And, this, and then we are in third grade politics here. Um, but how do you think this will impact, does it have any impact on what's happening in the Senate? No, it, it doesn't have any impact right now because I think that they're used to it, number one. And, and number two, they're, they're doing some very serious lifting in, in the United States Senate right now, working through the minutia of health care, trying to figure out how to get across the goal line. And they're not worried about how he treats an anchor on MSNBC. I, I just think they're beyond that. But I, I, I do believe that – I mean, there, there are – what – how many journalists out there? I mean, there's a million journalists out there, and and how what percentage of them hate Trump? Most of them, by by far. Is he going to go after every single journalist that 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 goes after him? He just can't possibly do that. He might he might do that. He, well, he might to, try. To some <laughs> extent, try. what we're really starting to understand again is that when women, it appears, criticize the president, his hackles get up, and he comes back with things that are intensely personal. And largely, especially at the highest levels, out of bounds. Although I will say, uh, and I'm not, I don't want to be in the position of defending the president on this because I think it's pretty stupid for him to make this fight. But Mika immediately tweets out something about his hands. Uh, this is personal in both ways. You're and, right. And, and, I... and Mika, and the, the thing I would make one quick, quick observation, he gets, he gets hammered for this for being a sexist. She doesn't get hammered at all for attacking him viciously all the time. And... I do think that if, if and this is going to get me in trouble, uh, and I know that you, you do need to have some uh, chivalry in this world, even though sometimes it's not responded. But if you're going to be in the big leagues and you're going to attack your president, you've got to be ready to take, take it. 
And you can't cry, oh my God, he's attacking me because I'm a woman. There's when no you, crying in baseball. There's no, there, then there's no crying in there's no crying in politics either. And I've, I I find this to be a fascinating thing that if you're a woman, you can attack a man, but the man can't attack you back, especially about a facelift. And I know that's way out of bounds, and I get all that. But the the, the relationship between those two is so interesting, and she is not a sympathetic figure. They are not sympathetic, and I I, I just I don't refuse to give her that, that moniker. We do have to acknowledge the absurdity of four white Republican guys talking about misogyny and cyberbullying. <laughs> well, and, and to take it just uh, up to a 30,000-foot level, I think that the discourse is horrific everywhere, and it's getting worse. Classic example. I'm driving on Capitol Hill with my kids, and they see a sign that says F. Trump, right? I am, I am For those sensitive ears out there, I'm not going to— like I go with the full deal, but, and I have to, and they, and they say, so what's that all about? And I have to explain it. And it's difficult to explain. Should the president be, be tweeting like this? No. I mean, does he set a tone by doing this? Yes, but it goes both ways there on the other side, they are going to ever, ever worse lengths to try to, to bash him. And he has thin skin. And so he's going to go down the gutter with them. And it's just this vicious cycle. This is not necessarily a new thing. They were saying the most vicious things about President Bush, the left. And, of course, the right was saying vicious things about President Obama. And so true. neither And side- President Clinton. I mean, it's true. Um, but I, I, I do think that, uh, that John Easton makes this wonderful point for all of us who are parents and we think about the influence and impact that all of this is having about what the standard of propriety is for our discourse as a country, we are really taking it down notch after notch, and we're going to pay a price for that. And it's hard to talk to our kids. It's hard for me to talk to my sons and explain to them uh, why language that's used on social media and the kinds of things that one posts in the heat of the moment are not the way you want to be perceived in this world and that you want to learn how to become a gentleman. Yeah, I think that's right, um, and it's not easy for kids. And I've, of course, a lot of people voted against Trump exactly because of how they thought he was going to have an impact on their kids and and the daily discussion. I will I will say we we live in reality television world, uh, which I know is reality television is scripted, <laughs> but it's also uh, there's been a degrading in our culture that is uh, troubling. And it's very difficult if you're if you're trying to raise your kids in this and make them grow up with some class. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very frustrating time. Theory three: Independence Day and the importance of American rituals. Uh, we were talking a little bit about culture and the importance of uh, teaching our chil- children the right culture. We're going to move in here for uh, July Fourth. We all celebrate the uh, independ- Independence Day and our birth of our, our nation. That's a day of uh, hot dogs, baseball, parades, um, cookouts. Um, but it's also, other, there are other parts of that ritual. Uh, John Easton, you were talking earlier off camera about a parade in Portland. Can America, in this type of um, difficult time where people are really at each other's throats, can we really together celebrate these rituals in a way that is comforting and gives us a sense of unity? I think we need to. We have to push through it. I think that despite uh, threats that there might be a problem, that there may be 
tension. I think we just need to keep moving, keep keep these traditions alive because they make us feel good. They bring us together. And I would add uh, to baseball, softball too. There's a, there's softball on right, July Fourth too. Of course. Okay. Right. I was thinking more of the Nationals, but right, right, right. I was thinking more on Capitol Hill softball. <laughs> but I I will be on Capitol Hill. I'll be watching the fireworks. I'll be grilling hot dogs and hamburgers and enjoying the best that America has to offer. Now, Chris, you have a tradition that you've done for quite a while. Can you tell us what you do on July 4th? Yeah, so here in Washington, uh, you go up to Northwest to the Washington National Cathedral. And on the morning of the 4th of July, the U.S. Navy sea chanters perform patriotic music for an hour. And in that incredible space with these incredible group of performers, it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It's just expertly executed. Uh, Adam Bellar, you just moved up to Capitol Hill, which is fantastic for everybody. Um, can you tell us what you're going to do with your kids on 4th of July? Are you guys going to go to a parade? What are you going to do? I am focused on making our first year here at EFB World Headquarters, Eastern Market, Capitol Hill, just six blocks from the United States Capitol, really count. So I'm going to be here at EFB World Headquarters, out on the patio, sussing out whether you can or you cannot see the fireworks. Because I think in successive years, the children of EFB are going to want to know whether there's a good party to be had here. I'm going to put my neck on the line. I'm going to be up here. I'm going to report back to everybody and our loyal listener on this podcast and let you know that EFB World Headquarters is the place to be in D.C. for the 4th of July. This is EFB Groundhog Day. Will Belmar see his fireworks? Well, there's more than one listener, I'm sure. There's at least two listeners. You're right. I was just being silly. But I tell you, uh, it's very exciting, as John Easton said, to be in, in the Capitol uh, on the 4th of July. And I'm very excited to call Eastern Market and Capitol Hill my home now. Now, I was uh, earlier this uh, last week, I went to the U2 concert. And uh, I listened to Bono uh, at the beginning. And he was political towards the end. But at the beginning, he said, I don't care if you voted for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or if you're Republican or Democrat. I want you all here listening to my music, and I love you all. And I thought it was a really good message, a very unifying message from an Irishman. Um, hopefully, people can feel they can march in parades. Uh, a politician can march in parades without getting, you know, booed or 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 uh, or any other kind of endangered by any other way. Um, you know, I think John, you were talking about what the Portland parade uh, that the Republican Party is not able to march in the Portland Parade because they canceled the Portland Parade. I mean, this is the thing that people have to understand, that we're all in this together, and the, the, the threats from the left and the right, this is not what America's all about. It's not what America's all about, and I don't think that that's what the majority of people want, is to be pushed around by the fringes of the left or fringes of the right. That's not where we've ever been, and I don't think that's where we will be. So that's why I think we have to just, we have to just keep pushing through. Keep the parades going. Keep the parades going. Keep the hot dogs going. Keep the fireworks going. And keep the baseball and softball. And for some kids, soccer. Keep that going, even though soccer is not really an American sport. Um, That being said, uh, thank you for listening to the EFB uh, presentation of the Fury Theory podcast. Uh, Happy Fourth of July. And uh, we're glad that you're listening. EFB. Excellent for business.